Hey, Big Valley Grace family. I, I wish I could be there in person with you, but I can't. I'll be back next weekend, uh, Lord willing. But I wanted to introduce our speaker to you, uh, Anson McMahon. Uh, it was a long time ago that uh, I was speaking at an event. I was the high school speaker, and Anson was the junior high speaker. And I remember I went into the room and listened to this young, young man uh, unpack the gospel, and it was unbelievable. And I got to be there with him all week, and then it, as it turned out, we both were at another event together where I got to uh, hang out with him and, and get to know him and hear him speak, and it was just obvious that God had gifted him in a very unique way. Well, there came a moment when we needed a youth pastor, and so we got a hold of Anson and brought him out here, and uh, he said yes. He came out and was our youth pastor here for, for a long time, and um, he, he was really great. God used him in some unbelievable ways here in our church, not just in the lives of young people, but in adults also, and uh, God called him back to Atlanta, and he now, uh, he has planted his own church. He's the pastor of his own church that's just doing great things uh, for God. And I'm just super excited. I'm watching right now, I guarantee I'm watching right now online. And would you do me a favor, and would you welcome my friend, Anson McMahon, up onto the platform right now. Do it, bless you. All right. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? So uh, it, there's uh, a couple things. Uh, I love seeing that video. I love seeing uh, Pastor Rick's face, man. There's, there's two things uh, that are true about uh, Pastor Rick Countryman, if you know him. Uh, one is that his love uh, for Jesus is absolutely contagious. Um, and the second one is he has the most perfect mustache in the history of the world. Um, I have no clue how he does that, man, but uh, you should totally frame it and, and put it in the Smithsonian. Um, I, uh, it's such a joy uh, to, to be here. Uh, my wife and I and our girls, uh, we, we've been here uh, all weekend. And, and man, just to interact and, and see folks um, uh, throughout the weekend has been such a blessing. I want to thank you for your hospitality. And, and it's been, it's been kind of surreal a little bit um, because we're seeing like all these people that, that we haven't seen for uh, a few years um, so like uh, last night, even last night after uh, the service was over, we went out to the, to the Welcome Center and we're just kind of greeting folks and, and shaking hands. And uh, I saw uh, this couple uh, who uh, were dating when we were when we were in the high school ministry. They, they were actually a couple of our students, our high school students. And, and I saw them and it was like, so good to see them. And I was like, man, how are you doing, man? How you doing? How's things going? And he says, great, we're married and I just finished dental school and I'm a dentist. And I said, great, I'm old. It's crazy, man. Like you have a real career and stuff, man. Um, but it's, it's been awesome, man. We, we, uh, we've been back here a few times uh, over the past, uh, I guess we left in, in 08. And so uh, we've, been, we've been back here a few times since. It's always such a joy uh, for a few reasons or a couple reasons. One is that um, it, it's just special. It always feels like family. And uh, we, we, we developed, when we, in our years here, we were here from 2003 to, uh, yeah, 2003 to 2008. And, and in those years, I mean, we were 3,000 miles away from our family back in Georgia. And uh, many of y'all became our family. Um, and it, it's, it's, you're still our family. And so we love coming back and we love just uh, interacting and you're such a blessing to us. Those are some sweet years of ministry. We, we cut our teeth in ministry here at Big Valley Grace. Uh, our, our first daughter, our oldest daughter, Annabelle, was born right here uh, in Modesto, right up at Memorial Hospital. And, um, and the other thing that, that we love about this church is the, the gospel generosity that's on display here. I'll tell you a quick story. I told this in the other services, but um, we, we, we planted a church. Uh, my wife and I planted a church there in the northeast suburbs of Atlanta uh, back about five years ago. And the first three or so years, you know, we're, we're crazy and, and 
and, you know, meeting in different weird places. And then finally we got our, we got our own building. Like the Lord opened it up for us to move into our own facility, which is a huge blessing. And, and I'll never forget, we're in this transitional phase. We were building out the building and getting it prepared for, uh, for us to move in. And, uh, in that, in that time, I got a call from, from Pastor Rick and, uh, he was like, Anson, uh, bro, we, we love you and we love, uh, what you're doing there. And, and we love the work that's going on and we're constantly praying for you. And I just calling to let you know, uh, be looking for a check uh, in the mail. And, uh, so we, you know, we're looking for the check in the mail and <laughs> I guess that's what you do when you plant a church or poor and looking for checks. And, uh, <laughs> we, we, uh, we, we got a check, um, there soon after that, um, that went towards, uh, furnishing our worship space with chairs. Uh, there, there are chairs in our worship space at Emmaus Church and there in Buford, Georgia, because of uh, Big Valley Grace Community Church. So, uh, I, I bring back a big thank you for allowing us to sit during worship. Um, Our, our people appreciate being comfortable. Um, but, but that is, uh, here's why I love that so much. It, it speaks to what, what we experienced during our five years and some change here at Big Valley Grace. And, and what I believe has always been true uh, here at Big Valley Grace. And it's absolutely amazing because it's something that's, it's something that's becoming uh, sort of rare, sadly. But, but it's this idea that um, it, what I love about Big Valley is that Big Valley Grace has consistently been more interested in building the kingdom of God than building its own kingdom. And, 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 and uh, yeah. And, um, I mean, like even right now, I, I tell you what happened. I tell you that a check was written by the leadership of this church and sent out because most likely knowing Rick and knowing the elders, they didn't come up here and toot their own horn on that. Uh, but most likely most of you didn't even know that because uh, that, that's, that's how kind of they roll here is uh, most of you won't, if not all of you, you will never enter into the doors of Emmaus Church in Beaufort, Georgia. Um, but, but a check was written because Big Valley was saying, hey, we're, we're interested in the gospel advancing, whether it's in the Central Valley or whether it's in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and that's a, an incredible thing. It's an incredible place. We love uh, Big Valley Grace. Uh, the second reason we love coming out here to Modesto and uh, to Big Valley is because um, I'm never in danger of starving when I'm in Modesto. Um, ever. I, we, we go back uh, weighing more consistently every time we visit out here. And, and it's mainly because y- y'all have food that uh, we, we don't have in Georgia. Um, so like, so for example, like Friday, uh, Friday, we flew into uh, San Francisco, which by the way, was wonderful timing flying into San Francisco on the day of the celebration for the Golden State Warriors. I was... Beautiful timing. <laughs> Spending seven hours driving through Livermore <laughs> next to guys with yellow flags on their cars, right? Screaming out the window, yeah, Dub Nation! I'm like, go Braves! <laughs> we finally made it, and then we, we found the first In-N-Out burger we could possibly find, and we scarfed that down immediately, man, because I've been longing for In-N-Out burger for the past three years, and so uh, we found the In-N-Out burger, and then yesterday, yesterday was so funny, because yesterday, oh man, we love coming, we love coming to Modesto, because uh, here you can actually get, uh, it's not like Atlanta, you can, you can get real Mexican food here, um, we don't have that in Georgia, pray for us, man, that the gospel, we get there. We don't, hey they, hey, they give it a shot. They, they try their best, right? They, they fry some ground beef, throw cheddar cheese on it, call it Mexican food, but pray for them because it's really tragic and sad. Um, it really is, man. And so, so we love coming out here because we get authentic, real. This is, this is the way it's supposed to be, right? This is, uh, th- this is amazing. And so we, we went to, for lunch yesterday, uh, La Huerta Vieja, which I have missed. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm saying. Man, and, and by the way, if you live in Modesto and have never been to La Huerta, repent. Um, <laughs> you've got some issues with the Lord and you need freedom. Um, we went to La Horta and uh, saw Frank, the owner, and, and, and we ate with some friends. And man, we had, uh, I don't know, five baskets of chips and that bean dip they got and the cabbage and the salsa. And I got me four, count them, four taco truck style chicken tacos. And y'all, I'm telling you, like, I ate so much. 
I ate so much yesterday for lunch, and, and we're wobbling out to the car. And here's here's life here's here's life in Modesto in a nutshell. Here's life in Modesto. So we get out to the car. We can barely walk. I'm sitting down in the in the in the driver's seat, and I'm looking at my wife, and I'm like, "Sweetheart, I'm so." Fool. And she says, I know me too. And I said, oh, I can't believe I ate that much. She says, I know me neither. I said, I, I, I'm not hungry at all. I probably won't be hungry for three days. She said, I know me too. And I said, let's go to Mr. T's. <laughs> right? That's, that's life in Modesto, right? And so we go to, we immediately, immediately go to Mr. T's. And I walk in. And I see, they didn't have this when I was here. I see, I see, I see the bacon maple bar. The Shekinah glory was shining on it. It was like, like angels were singing around it, man. And I'm, I'm going, oh, thank you, Lord. So that's, the, that's what I got. That's what else would you get, right? And, and I, ate, I ate like a third of it last night because that's all I could do. I was like, whoa, I can't, I can't, whoa, I can't do that. Um, and I ate the rest of it this morning. Um, so I'm just saying... Uh, I'm warning you because I could go for three hours right now. I could preach for that long because I'm on a maple bacon high, right? So um, let, me, let me do this. Uh, if you have a Bible, Joshua chapter 24 is where we are. We're going to hang out there this morning, family. And um, as you turn to Joshua chapter 24, I'm going to pray uh, for us. So let's pray together. And Father, I do thank you for uh, the gift that is uh, Big Valley Grace Community Church, how you've used this place and the ministry here in this church to pour into me and my own family. Lord, there's no way we would be in the place that we are today without the ministry of this church, the faithfulness of this body of believers and the leadership of Big Valley and Pastor Rick. And I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. And Lord, oftentimes it can be so easy to think that this is the influence of a church is only this right here, what happens on a Sunday morning, but there are ways you're using this church miles away that, that Lord, many of us don't even know about. So thank you for that. Thank you that you're so faithful to do that. I, I want to pray right now a special prayer for Pastor Rick and Aaron as they uh, enjoy some much-deserved and much-needed time away to rest and to be with family. I thank you for that, Lord. And we do pray for them. We pray that you would give them uh, rest. We pray that you would give them pause and refresh them. Would they experience shalom from you over the next few days? And Lord, oftentimes as a pastor, it's, it's hard. It's grueling. The hat never comes off. And you're always thinking about the church. And you go to bed thinking about it. And you wake up thinking about it. And you dream about it. And you, you're the broken lives and the people you're burdened for and the people you long to see the gospel take root in their lives. And it can, be, it can be hard sometimes, Lord. And so I pray that over the next few days that Pastor Rick and Aaron would truly, truly be able to rest. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would shower them with blessings, that they would eat some good food and be able to sit down in some comfortable chairs to do nothing to the glory of God and just to rest in you. We love them so much, and we're thankful for them. We're thankful for this church, this body of believers, all the ministries here, all the, all the things that you're doing. Lord, would you speak to us now through your word? And I pray it all through the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, so uh, we'll, start, we'll start this way. We'll kind of get a running start so you kind of know uh, where we're going for the next uh, few minutes. Um, I don't know about the rest of you guys in here, uh, you, you men, uh, but uh, for me, when I was a kid, uh, one of the things uh, that was my, what I enjoyed doing more than anything else in the world, one of my hobbies as a kid was that I, uh, I collected baseball cards. Anybody else collect baseball cards when you were a kid, right? You, you did that, right? I mean, it's kind of a popular deal and an easy thing to collect. And so I would collect base, baseball cards and I uh, had a ton of them, had, had like actually um, hundreds of them, maybe even thousands. And, and I'll tell you, I'll be honest, I had this pipe dream. Um, and I kind of lived in this fantasy world where I actually believed as a young kid that I needed to be really serious about collecting these baseball cards because uh, one day these baseball cards were going to increase in their value and they were going to become my meal ticket. 
right? I mean, they, they were, I was not even going to have to get a job because I was going to have so much money as a result of these, these baseball cards that I had taken care of and put away and made sure nothing happened to them that I would literally, like one day, one day I would go to purchase my first house and I wouldn't pay money. I would literally just hand them a card, right? <laughs> and that'd be it, right? It would be so lucrative. I thought it was going to be awesome, right? And out of all the cards that I had that I was convinced were going to make me a ton of money. This one right here was by far, I believe, the most valuable. This was going to be my mail ticket right here. It's a 1991 Fleer Barry Bonds. So unless you've been living in the backwoods for the past decade, you know uh, this didn't turn out real well for me. <laughs> right? Ended up having to get a job. Uh, because, because here's the thing. So, so here's the deal. Like, like Barry Bonds, even though he's the only human being in the history of the world who has ever hit more home runs than Hammer and Hank Aaron, uh, there's this giant star next to his name, if you look up in the, in the record books, um, all because of, of what? What, family? What? Steroids. Why, Barry? Why? Why, Barry? Right? So, uh, and honestly, I mean, who are we kidding? We... <laughs> We, we, had our, we, we had our clues, something was going on. We, we, should have maybe, we should have maybe known something was awry when he started to hit 425-foot home runs every couple days. And maybe, maybe one of the things that could have tipped us off was when his head grew three sizes in nine months, right? <laughs> We're going, huh, that's not normal, right? I mean, but we decided to look the other way. We decided just to, you know, really not pay attention, not say anything. And tragically for me, because of this, because of the steroids, um, this car that I was convinced was going to be so valuable and, and worth so much, um, tragically, here we are 24 years later. This car's 24 years old. And you want to know how much this card is worth, uh, church family? I looked it up on the World Wide Web uh, this past week, and I found out how much this 1991 Fleer Barry Bonds card is actually worth. This Barry Bonds card right here that you're looking at is worth worth a whopping $1.25. Yes. Yeah. But the good news is I got three of them. So that's $3.75, which can't quite buy me a gallon of gasoline Modesto, but it comes close, right? So it's, so it's not worth, uh, it's really it's really not worth a whole lot, but I'm not crying any crocodile tears because thankfully I've got this Mark McGuire card <laughs> to help me out, right? Now, now here's, here's, the, uh, here's the point, church family. Here's the point. There are certain things in this world that uh, don't, don't have a lot of value, right? I mean, that's no surprise. I mean, there are certain things in our world that we look at and we go, that's, that's not real valuable. That's not worth a whole lot. Like, for example, a Barry Bonds baseball card or a Millie Vanilli CD or, <laughs> or lately a Sacramento Kings jersey, right? I mean, there's, there's certain things. What? I'm just saying... I'm just, I could, I could pull out the record for you. I could, I could if you haven't seen it, right? Um, but here's the point. So here's the point, that there are certain things that just aren't that valuable in our culture. But then, but then there are other things that, honestly, um, it's almost impossible to even comprehend how valuable they are. Like, for example, a father. It's hard to over-exaggerate uh, the, the importance of, of a father, of a daddy. And here's the deal, Big Valley. It doesn't matter who you are. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what your theological position is or what you believe about God or the Bible. One of the things that you cannot argue with, no matter who you are, is the fact that fathers are critically important in the life of their children. And I say that, I man, you got to understand, again, it doesn't matter, like you really can't argue with that because you got to understand, that's not just what the Bible teaches, that's sociology, y'all. That, that's statistics. So, so for example, um, here's a few statistics I brought with me um, from places like the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and the CDC and the U.S. Department of Justice. I want to read this to you. Think about these statistics. Take these in uh, for a moment. 
63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the national average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 80% of all rapists come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Homes, Children without fathers who are actively involved in a healthy way in their lives are 40% less likely to repeat a grade in school. Children with fathers who are actively involved in a healthy way in their lives are 70% less likely to drop out of school. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions are from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. 85% of all youths in prison right now, today, at this moment, Come from fatherless homes. Adolescent girls who were raised in a two-parent home with involved fathers are significantly less likely to be sexually active. 71% of pregnant teenage girls do not have an actively involved father. And those are just the ones I highlighted, man. We could, we could honestly be here all morning talking about the, the implications of all this. But beloved, here's the deal. Um, all I'm trying to say to you this morning is that numbers don't lie. What every sociologist and every statistician can agree on is this. Fathers matter. Fathers matter. Big Valley Grace Community Church, fathers matter. And I realize that we live in a culture today that tells us fathers really aren't that big of a deal and fathers really do not matter. I'm going to tell you something. Culture's lying to you. Fathers matter a whole lot. They matter. And here's... It's true, right? And, and here's, here's the thing. What's interesting is when you read the scriptures, when you read the Bible, what you find is that you find God not only tells us that fathers matter and you find that the Lord, uh, it's interesting because the Lord's position is not just that it's important for a daddy to be in the home. Like, like that's, that's good. It's good for a daddy to be actively involved in his kid's life. Like that's important. That's a good start. You get a gold star for that, right? That's, that's wonderful, but that's not the end game. Like according to the Lord in the scriptures, God wants a certain kind of father in the home. So yes, be in the home. Yes, be actively involved in the life of your kids. But, but it's more than that. God wants a certain type of daddy to be involved in the life of his kids. And specifically, God wants fathers to be godly fathers. It's the end game. That, that's what he's after, okay? Because here's the reality, men of Big Valley. Let's just be honest. You can be a dad who is really fun and, and winsome, and you can be a dad who knows how to teach his son to throw a really wicked curveball, and you can be a dad who knows how to sing the entire Frozen soundtrack from memory with your daughters and actually enjoy doing it, and you can be a dad who is willing to cancel your important business trip to be at your kid's piano recital, and you can be a dad who tucks your kids into bed every single night until finally they have to tell you it's getting kind of creepy because they're 18, right? <laughs> You can be super dad. You can be super epic, amazing dad. But I'm telling you, if you are not a godly dad, then tragically you've kind of missed the point of being a dad. Because believe it or not, being a dad is about far more than just showing up at baseball games and daddy-daughter dances. That's good. But according to the scriptures, being a dad is about living the kind of life that actually causes your children to want to know Jesus. And that's not my opinion. That, that's the scriptures, man. That, that's God speaking to us about this. Ephesians chapter 6, 4, the Lord says this. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, so, so in other words, meaning it's awesome if you're a fun dad. That's, that's great, a fun dad who, who laughs with your kids. That's, that's awesome, right? It's, 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 it's amazing if you're a hardworking dad who, who provides for your kids. And, and it's, it's terrific if you're an athletic dad who, who mountain bikes and goes splunking, right, with, with your kids. That's awesome. But, but let me be clear, guys. Greater than all that is to be a godly dad who is consistently pointing your children to Jesus. That's better. Those other things are good, but, but that's better. Now, the question that every man in this room should be asking right now is this. Um, what, is it, what does it look like to be a godly dad? I mean, let's define that a little bit. What does that mean? Because it's one thing to just make the statement, hey, God wants fathers to be godly fathers, but like we have to expound on that a little bit. We have to, we have to talk about what that 
means? What does it look like? And by the way, can I also just say this? Some of you are in this room right now, and maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I'm 17 years old. I'm not a daddy yet. Why do, we need, why do I need to listen to this? And right now, you know, you're looking at Instagram, and I'm just going to tell you right now, um, maybe, perhaps, odds are, by God's grace, you are going to be a father one day, which means you probably should be taking copious notes. Because I don't know if you've looked around the culture, man, this issue is a really, really big deal. So the question we should ask is, what does it look like to be a godly father? What does that mean? Let's, let's define that. Well, um, before we define it, let me just say this too, because, because some of us, this is a hard issue for us because we think about it and we go, man, uh, I really need somebody to define this for me because I never had this lived out for me. I never had anyone live out uh, this example of being a, a godly father. I mean, I venture to even say this, many of us in this room, uh, not only did we not have a godly dad in the home, we didn't have a dad in the home. We didn't have a dad even around. We didn't have a dad outside of the home who was involved in our lives. Many of us, many of us never had that. I mean, you know, Pastor Scott up here a while ago sharing that story about the fact that that's, that's the way he grew up. And many of us in this room could totally relate to what he was saying because many of us, that's the way we grew up. We, we didn't have the privilege of seeing this right here modeled for us. And I'm going to tell you, man, that, that's a story of yours truly. That's my story. I, I'm right there with you. So, so here's my story. When I was five years old, uh, I was five years old, my dad took off uh, and left my, uh, me and my mom and my younger sister faster than you could say, what about my college fund? Right? He just split, he took off because he wasn't real interested in being a daddy. He wasn't real interested in being a, a husband. He, he really wasn't his bag. So he decided I'm not, I'm not interested in that and I'm taking off. And so he left me uh, living with a single mom who was trying to raise us, working overtime at Geico uh, so that she could pay the rent on um, a poor subsidized housing in Warner Robins, Georgia. And, uh, Honestly, my dad never even took the time to send me a birthday card with a $5 bill in it. Because again, being a dad wasn't his thing. He disappeared like Houdini and did his own deal. And I'm telling you right now, I am, I'm 37 years old today and I have no clue whether or not my biological father is alive or dead. I don't know. There was this void there, you know, growing up fatherless, you, 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 have, this, you have this total void. And, and so consequently, here's what happened. As a result of growing up without a daddy, one of the consequences of that was this. When I was growing up, every Father's Day, I kind of felt like a Star Wars fan at a Star Trek convention. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? You're like, I don't belong here, right? So, I don't fit in. Because all my buddies, you know, every Father's Day, all my friends are giving their daddies ties and smoked sausage and Harley Davidson shirts. And here's me sitting over here scratching my head wondering why my daddy didn't want me. And so there was this dilemma, right? And so uh, as a result of that, 22 years after my father left me and walked out, uh, when we had our first child, uh, Annabelle, my first daughter was being born right up here at Memorial Hospital. My heart, I had two, uh, two overpowering emotions uh, within me. One was um, absolute and complete joy um, because I was having a baby. But the other one was I was totally freaking out <laughs> because I had no clue what to do. I, I never saw this modeled for me. I, I, I didn't know how to be this kind of dad. But here's the good news, Big Valley. Here's the amazing, glorious, wonderful news. Even though some of us in this room never had a godly daddy who lived this out for us, God in his mercy does not leave us hanging, but instead he gives us his word. And if you pick up his word, you open up his word, you read his word, one of the things you're going to find out is God in his love and compassion and grace shows us in his word what it looks like to be a godly father. And there's all kinds of scripture passages that we could have picked from today, but, but the one that was put on my heart by the Lord was Joshua chapter 24. So here we go. Joshua uh, 24. And before we dive in, a little bit of context, just, just so you know. So when we get to Joshua chapter 24... The people of Israel have been led by this brother Joshua for about 28 years. It's a long time. 
For 28 years, Joshua has led these people, and kind of a lot has happened during these 28 years, right? So, 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 so it started with Moses dying. Moses died. That's what kicked it all off. It's kind of a big deal. Moses died. Joshua transitioned into this role of leadership for the people. The people of Israel crossed the Jordan River to take the land that God had promised to them years before. The walls of Jericho fell. Some of y'all remember that, right? The walls of Jericho fall. And, and the people, Israel, takes control of this land, and they now have a home, which is great, okay? And, and And now, after 28 years, think about that, after 28 long years of of listening to God and and walking with God and leading for God and at times suffering for God, now Joshua is an old man. He's, He's an old man. So in Joshua 24, Joshua gathers the leaders of Israel together. We're talking all the husbands, all the fathers. Joshua gathers the husbands and fathers together and he knows that he's probably going to die soon. He can see the writing on the wall. He knows he's not getting any younger. Matter of fact, he's really old and Joshua understands he doesn't have much time left. And this is one of the reasons I love Joshua. Joshua knows he doesn't have much time left on this earth. So as a result, he he decides to preach one final sermon. And that's why I love Joshua. Because like I so hope that I'm, I'm that kind of old man, Right? I really do. I hope that I hope that when I get older, I hope like if the doctor ever says, hey, man, you're getting older, you don't have much time left, your health is failing, and you probably aren't going to be around for much longer, I hope that my knee-jerk reaction at that point will not be, well, better go buy my condo in Florida, but instead, I hope my reaction is, well, better preach one more time. Gather the people so I can scream at them. <laughs> like, like I do, I, I hope... That's my response, and that's why I love Joshua. He's like, I know I don't have much time left, so let's get, let's, get the, let's get the fathers and the husbands together. I have something on my heart that I need to say. So, and, and just so you know, this is a beautiful sermon. It really is. It's this, it's this incredible speech that Joshua gives, and you should read the whole thing later because in the first 13 verses of Joshua 24, Joshua is reminding these people of the faithfulness of God, how faithful God has been throughout uh, all, of, all of their lives. And really, even before that, like he starts with Abraham, he starts with the call of Abraham, and he tells the people, y'all remember, remember how good God is. Remember how God called Abraham and says, I, w- I will make a nation out of you, the wild number of the stars of the sky. And, and from generation to generation to generation, throughout that entire Genesis narrative, God has been so faithful, so good, in spite of us often, times. He's such a faithful God. And so he reminds them of the faithfulness of God. And now we get to verse 14. And in verse 14, Joshua has a very specific message for all of these husbands and all these fathers who were gathered before him. And watch what he says. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And just, you know, In these two verses, we see exactly what it looks like to be a godly father. So I'm going to give you five things real quick that we take away from these two verses from Joshua's speech to the men of Israel. Number one is this. Number one, a godly father has a fear of God. Please don't miss that, family. A godly father has a fear of God. Of God. Look at verse 14 again, what he says in verse 14. He says, Now therefore, first thing, right out of the gate, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Guys, fear the Lord. Men, men, fear the Lord. And, and, and this is one of those points where oftentimes if people are skeptical of God, Jesus, the Bible, etc., oftentimes the response, one of the responses you'll hear is, see, that's what I'm talking about. That's why I don't like the Bible. That's why I don't get it. That's why it doesn't make any sense. Why would a God of love want me to be afraid of him? Why would a God of love, why would a God who's loving uh, want me to fear him? Okay, but if that's your position, I would say you, you, you totally misunderstand. But because what you need to get is this. When the Bible talks about having a fear of God, it's not talking about, you know, the, the kind of fear that, that we think of often with you know, the kind of fear that someone with arachnophobia might have of a spider or, 
you know, the kind of fear a prisoner might have of an executioner or kind of fear that an opposing pitcher might have a Buster Posey, right? That, that kind of fear and terror and, oh, right? It's, not, it's, it's really not. Like, it's really, but, but instead, instead, when Joshua tells these brothers to fear the Lord, guys, fear the Lord, he's literally talking about the kind of fear that a son would have for his father. That's what he's talking about. Meaning, in the same way that a son respects his father, and in the same way that a son wants to please his father, and in the same way that a son does not want to disappoint his father, a man should have that same kind of attitude and disposition towards the Lord. That's what that means. It means my, my, my heart should be in a position towards the Lord where I say, God, I want to know you. God, I want to please you. God, I want to walk with you. God, I don't want to stray from you. God, it bums me out when I disappoint you. I don't want to do that. God, I want to be near you. It's, it's, it's that kind of attitude and disposition. And, and guys, this is really a big deal. It's a really big deal because it has tons of implications in our lives. Because just so you're aware, when you have that same t- type of attitude towards God, when you have that same attitude in your heart towards God that says, God, I want to please you, walk with you, don't want to disappoint you, that's important because that kind of attitude totally transforms who you are when no one else is looking. In other words, not only does it transform and change who you are in places like this, when you're in public and around folks, but it, but it also changes, most importantly, who you are when, when nobody else is looking. Because if you have a healthy fear of the Lord, then you understand that even if you're all alone, and even if your wife isn't around, and even if your kids aren't around, and even if none of your friends are around, the Lord sees everything. And the Lord hears every conversation you have and the Lord knows every thought that crosses your mind and the Lord knows what your internet history is even if you try to delete all the cookies and the Lord has read every text message and the Lord knows all about that greed you're nursing in your heart and that secret sin you refuse to repent of. So consequently, consequently the man who has a healthy fear of God is a humble man who is constantly owning his sin, being honest about his sin, repenting of his sin, refusing to walk around in pride and arrogance because he's living his life before the face of God. The church fathers had this Latin phrase that they would use oftentimes, uh, quorum Deo, quorum Deo, quorum Deo, which, which, which literally means before the face of God. And the whole idea was this, I live my life before the face of God. Even if no one else is around, God is, always is, and my life is quorum Deo, before the face of God. That's what we're talking about. I, I don't know how many of you men in here um, are Bette Midler fans, uh, but if you are, please don't admit it. Um, <laughs> please don't. It is grounds for church discipline. It could get ugly. Um, but but, but I don't, some of you may remember this. Back in 1990, uh, Bette Midler came out with this song. This song, uh, back in 1990, became a huge hit. Uh, this song, From a Distance. Some of y'all remember the song, From a Distance, right? And some of y'all do, and some of y'all are just too ashamed to admit it. But uh, 1990, Bette Midler comes out with this song, uh, From a Distance. And, and it was this really sappy song, and, uh, but it got really popular. And the only reason I remember it really is because it was always the song, for whatever reason, it was always a song they would play at couple skate, at the skating rink when I was 12, right? It was that guy's go-to, right? I guess a Bette Midler fan. And so uh, always play that song. And it's an interesting song. Usually songs that are written in our culture about God are interesting songs. And, and the song, she's got this chorus uh, at, at some point in her song. The, the, the main chorus says this. Some of you remember it. The main chorus says, God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. And kind of the main idea of this song, this song left you with this picture of God that, uh, that kind of went like this. It was this picture that said, uh, hey, uh, there is a God, there is a God somewhere out there in a galaxy far, far away. But he's not really actively involved in your life at all. But here's the good news. He is watching you constantly through his high-power telescope somewhere out there. And that was the impression of God that the song left you with. But here's the deal, Big Valley, just so you know. Bette Midler is a really great singer, but she's a really terrible theologian. She just is. Matter of fact, here's a good rule of thumb. Never get your theology from Bette Midler, Kim Kardashian, or Oprah. I mean, no offense, 
you know, they're, they're really talented people, except for Kardashian, but. <laughs> but I'm just saying, it's better to stick with the Bible when it comes to theology. It's because somebody can sing a good song, doesn't mean they know a whole lot about the Lord. And, and, and here's, here's the problem. So, so, so you have the Bible uh, that takes a radically different position than the message of that song. Because the scriptures actually tell us something like this. In Psalm 25, verse 12, we read this. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. Watch this. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his Covenant. Okay, so in other words, translation, God is not just like dwelling in a galaxy far, far away, watching humanity through his binoculars, but instead, according to the scriptures, God actually speaks to the man who fears him. God actually intentionally leads the man who fears him, and God is intimately involved in the life of the man who Fears him. So, so men of Big Valley and fathers and husbands, here's my question for you. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Number two, the second takeaway we take from this passage of scripture is this. Number two, a godly father is not swayed by the culture. A godly father is not swayed by the culture. This is a big deal. Look, look once again, it, it bears repeating. Look once again at what is written, what, what Joshua says in verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I so love that about Joshua. I love that Joshua lines up all these people, and immediately he addresses the tension in the room. He addresses the fact that, man, this isn't real easy to live for God. I mean, immediately he comes out of the gate and says, listen, guys, I get it. I get it. I realize that we live in a land where when it comes to who you're going to follow and, and what you're going to devote your life to, there's a whole lot of options. I mean, like everywhere you look, you've got these little G gods and all kinds of people in our culture are devoting their lives to these little G gods and, and following all kinds of different things. Joshua's like, I get it, man. I understand. It's, it's, it's not easy. So I want you to know, Big Valley, that the reality is this. The same thing that Joshua said was true back in 1400 B.C. is the same thing that's true today. Because much like Joshua, we live in a culture where... There's a whole lot of options when it comes to what you're going to follow. Amen? There's a whole lot of options when it comes to what you're going to devote your life to. There's a whole lot of options when it comes to what little G God you're going to chase after. Some worship the little G God known as Allah. Some worship the little G God known as the Book of Mormon. Some worship the little G God known as money. Some worship the little G God known as gluttony. Some worship the little G God known as illicit sex. Some worship the little G God known as social media. And every morning, first thing, first thing they do when they open their eyes is reach for their idol and have their quiet time. <laughs> Let their God speak to them. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest, y'all. There are a lot of imitation gods being worshipped today. But, but then here's our brother Joshua saying, look, man, I understand. I get it. We live in a culture where there's a whole lot of options when it comes to what you're going to follow or what you're going to worship. But as for me and my house, and as for me and my kids, and as for me and my wife, Joshua says, we will worship the Lord, even if we're in the minority. Did you get that part? Even if we're in the minority, even if we're the only ones. It's kind of interesting to me because we live in a culture today where many times believers, those of us who love Jesus, follow Jesus, adore Jesus, uh, long to grow in relationship with Jesus, many times we have this perspective of going, man, it sure is hard to be a follower of Jesus and a worshiper of Jesus in our culture because it feels like we're so outnumbered. And my response to that is, read the Bible, so were they. Nothing's changed. It's the same thing. And yet here's Joshua going, I realize, I get it. Most people aren't 
following the Lord. But as for me and mine, we will follow the Lord. And why would Joshua say that to these husbands and fathers? Why would that be his heart's cry? Here's the answer, Big Valley. It's because, it's because Joshua understood that godly fathers aren't real interested in what the majority is doing. Godly fathers aren't real interested in what the majority is saying. Godly fathers aren't real interested in gaining a bunch of style points from the people around them. And I'll say this with love and hopefully in humility and hopefully you'll receive this, but I'm just going to tell you, godly fathers aren't real interested in what the Supreme Court says about how we should think or feel. Because godly fathers are called to care more about what God has said. And sometimes you don't get a whole lot of accolades for that. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Even if we're in the minority. So you have to notice what Joshua says here in verse 15, but because, but because this is a big deal, and this brings us to number three. Number three is this, write this down. Third takeaway we take from this text is this. A godly father leads. Church family, a godly father leads. A godly father leads. So notice again, look at the end of verse 15, what he says here. The end of verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And right there in that sentence, in that statement, Joshua uses two very, very important words that, frankly, more fathers and more husbands should be using today in 2015. He says, as for me and my house, we will. We will. Church family, on the count of three, all all the men, I want you to say, we will. You ready? One, two, three. We will. Let's try that one more time. That's the best one yet, man. Holy Spirit's moving, right? (laughs) Try it again. One, two, three. We will. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, in other words, get this. You got to absorb this, man. In other words, what this brother's saying is this. Look, uh, I am going to be a leader. By God's grace, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to chart a course for my family on purpose. I'm going to be interested in charting a course for my family. I'm going to do that. Like, like I'm, not going to be, I'm not going to be Adam in the Garden of Eden forcing my wife to make all the significant decisions for our family. I'm not going to be the passive male just, just happening over and over and over again generation. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to boldly, lovingly, humbly stand up in front of my family and actually use the words, we will. Family, we will. We will love Jesus. We will serve Jesus. We will worship Jesus. We will give to Jesus. We will tell others about Jesus. We will love the church that Jesus died for. We will care about all the things that Jesus cares about, like the nations and the church and the lost and racial reconciliation and the hurting and the poor and disenfranchised and generosity and prayer. We will. We will. And if no one else in my family will, then I will until we all will. That, that's called leadership. It's called leadership. And you lead like Jesus. You don't lead in a domineering fashion. You don't lead, you know, with this, with this drill sergeant mentality of you will or else, or else I'll, I'll do this. No, you, you, you lead by example because that's how Jesus leads. That's a man. That's a husband. That's a father, a spiritual leader who lovingly says, we will. I'll be the first one, and we will. And like a good and faithful shepherd, he lovingly leads his family well. I remember back uh, seven years ago, I was, I was preaching up in uh, Portland, Oregon, at George Fox University at this summer camp they were doing up there uh, for high school students. And I'll never forget, one night during the evening session, I preached on this biblical idea that God has called men to be spiritual leaders in their homes, in their families, in their churches. He's placed a significant, unique mantle of leadership on men. Now, uh, God created both men and women 
equally before God, like the, the image of God, equally in the image of God, the Imago Dei. God loves both men and women equally. God uses both men and women equally in, in, in ministry, like, like both men and women should serve in local churches. Both men and women should serve in, on church staffs. Both men and women are valuable before the Lord, but you cannot escape the biblical truth that God has called men to a unique position of spiritual leadership. Can't escape it. Not if you read the Bible. So I preached on this one night, and, and then after it was over, I said a closed prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. And we went back to our, my, my wife and I went back to our room, and all the students dispersed, and had their church group time. And, and next morning, first thing next morning, I'm coming back to the auditorium, and I carry my Bible. And I uh, got my wife holding my hand, and we're walking into the auditorium lobby, and, and I come in, and, and immediately I see a youth pastor standing over here in the lobby, and, and he, apparently he was waiting on me, because as soon as I walk into the lobby, he sees me, he makes a beeline for me, and have you ever had one of those experiences where you saw somebody walking towards you, and immediately you thought to yourself, wow, he doesn't want to be my friend? <laughs> you just tell, right? You just, no, he doesn't, <laughs> So I knew, I, this is bad. So the guy's walking straight towards me and he looks at me and he says, uh, Mr. McMahon, uh, I, I'm angry at you. I need to talk to you right now. And my wife looks at me and she goes, baby, I'll leave you alone. I'll, I'll walk over here. <laughs> and I'm thinking, please don't, please don't. She's walking away. I'm like, no. <laughs> and so so, so I look at this brother and I'm like, hey man, what's going on? And he goes, man, I just want you to know how angry I am. My, my youth ministry, all my students are angry at you. I'm angry at you because of what you stood on that platform and said last night. We can't believe you said that. We are offended by what you said. Can't believe that you made those statements that you made. And, and, and uh, we just want you to know that we're really angry. We're really upset. And I'm sitting there looking at him thinking to myself, wow. I, I don't know what I said. But it must have been awesome to take all these people off. That must have been Wow. Wow. And so I looked at him, I said, brother, I said, brother, you're going to have to help me out because I, I don't even know, what did I say? What did I say? And he said to me, last night you stood on that platform and you said men are supposed to be the leaders, men are supposed to lead the women. It's about the men leading the women. It's, it's, it's the men thing. And men are supposed to be spiritual leaders to the women. You stood on that platform, you said that last night, we're totally offended. And I, I looked at him, I said, brother, I didn't say that. He said, yeah, you did. I said, no, I, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. I can go get a CD right now. We can put it in. We can listen to it. I know that you said that. We sat there and I listened to you say that. And I said, oh, hold on. Wait, time out. Uh, do you mean when I told you like uh, what, what God said in places like Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and kind of all throughout the Bible? <laughs> he didn't want to be my friend, y'all. <laughs> But I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be assertive and I'm trying to be clear here, Big Valley. Just so you know, I say that unapologetically. God has called men to be spiritual leaders. And if you hear that statement and immediately your mind goes to, that's derogatory towards women. That's a hateful thing to say about women. Then I would push back and say this. No, actually, that's one of the most loving things that God could ever do for a woman or say for a woman is to look at his men and say, hey, brother, you better take care of my daughters. Right? For God to look at his men, line up his men and say, you're responsible. You care for my daughters. You set the example for my daughters. You better lead my daughters. You are responsible. I mean, you seriously think that that's somehow offensive and evil? That's the most loving thing that God could say. And I'm telling you right now, I got two little girls sitting right over here. God has not seen fit to give me sons. He's given me two daughters. And I guarantee you, once that 17-year-old once that dude pushes up on my front porch, I guarantee you I'm saying that to him. Are you kidding? Right? Hey, brother, how you doing, man? It's good to meet you, man. It's good to meet you. I've heard great things. Now turn your baseball cap around, pull your pants up. You better take care of that girl. Right? You really going to tell me that's unloving? I can't believe you would say that. That's an unloving thing to say about your daughters. Really? Come on. Don't say that. Don't say that to me, man. I'm from the South. We crazy, okay? <laughs> it's loving. Now, lastly, I'm, I'm, I'm channeling my inner countryman. We're five minutes over. Let's do this. Let's do this. Uh, in the words of Rick, let's hustle, okay? Number four, number four, a godly father serves the right God. 
A godly father serves the right God. Notice what he says. He says, we will serve who? The Lord. As for me and mine, we're going to serve the Lord. See, church family, here's the reality. Um, whether you know it or not, we're all serving something. We're all serving somebody. You could be in here a staunch atheist right now, and you could be thinking, man, this is a bunch of bunk. I can't believe these people believe this. But guess what? You serve something too. Maybe you should assess yourself because just so you know, you serve something or somebody too. We, we all do. Give an example. I'm not checking my text. I'm going to read you something. Okay, I know this looks weird. Um, back in the 1970s, the great prophet Bob Dylan. Can I get an amen? Come on. Y'all know it's good. Y'all know it's good. <clears throat> Bob Dylan wrote this from his words, uh, words from a song that he wrote called You Gotta Serve Somebody. You Gotta Serve Somebody. Some of y'all are familiar with that. Listen to these words. It's ring true, man. This is so good. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You, may, you might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You might be a businessman or some high degree Chief, thief, they may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And that is the truth. Every single one of us in this room are serving somebody. And so here's the question. Who are you serving? Who are you serving? Or another way to ask is this. Some of you are like, I don't, I don't really know. What if I don't know who I'm serving or what I'm serving? Then here's the good defining question. Here's a good way to determine that. Ask yourself this question. What's most important to you right now? Right now at this moment in your life on this Sunday, what's the most important thing to you? In other words, what's controlling your, your schedule? What's controlling your, your Sabbath? What, what's, what, what's controlling your heart? What stirs your heart's affections? What do you tend to get defensive about? Is it the God called money? Is it the God called sports? Is it the God called career? Or is it the God called Jesus? Because just so you're aware, we're all serving somebody. And fathers of Big Valley, listen to me. We are all serving somebody and your kids are watching you. And most likely, they will serve what you serve. And then finally, number five, we're done. Number five. I love this. A godly father is a devastating weapon in the hands of the Lord. A godly father is a devastating weapon in the hands of the Lord. How do we know? Because of how this story ends. Joshua 24, look at verse 29. Look at how the story ends. I love this. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Is that not amazing? I mean, you catch what that means? So, so in other words, here was a brother who, who called all the other men of Israel, the husbands and the fathers, up, gathered before him, and he challenged them, he mandated them to, to fear God and to stay the course and to lead humbly and spiritually and to serve God. And as a result, according to the text right here in Joshua 24, the influence of these godly fathers was so powerful and potent that the entire nation served the Lord. Are you kidding me? The whole nation serves God. Why? Because these men said, we're going to be godly dads. We're going to be godly fathers. We're going to do this thing by God's grace and with God's help. We're in. Minnebeg Valley, I'm begging you. Please do not underestimate the influence of a godly father in the life of his kids. A man who spends his life consistently pointing his children to Jesus is living out what it truly means to be a father. So here's how I'll end it. I want to say this. Dads, dads in here, fathers in here, thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you do. It's far more important than you even realize. It's far more important than we can even put into a day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Man, your post well by God's grace. Future dads in the room, thank you for what you will do.
And as fathers in here, may we always take our cues from our heavenly father who is perfect and who gave his one and only son so that we might be called the children of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I'll just throw this out there. Some of you dads, maybe the Holy Spirit's working in your heart this morning and you need to repent of some sin. And maybe, maybe an act of repentance means to seek prayer from someone this morning. Maybe you need to repent by just looking over at your wife or your kids who are with you this morning and saying something like, you know what, I, I, I'm sorry I've not been the father that God has called me to be. And by his grace, I want to change, but I need to start by asking for your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? Maybe for some of you dads, that's what repentance looks like this morning. Maybe for some of you dads, you need to just own up to the fact that you've blown it. We all stumble in many ways, and you just need to own that sin and repent this morning. Maybe some of you, maybe some of you have dads, maybe even in the room, or maybe just a phone call away, and what repentance looks like for you today is to pick up a phone, call your dad, and say, Dad, I'm sorry that I've consistently taken you for granted because you have faithfully been the dad that God has called you to be, and I want to say thank you, and I love you. I praise God for you. Father, whatever it looks like for us to walk in obedience to you today, I pray by your grace that we would. I thank you for the men in this place. I thank you for the women in this place. I thank you for the church called Big Valley Grace and for your work here. And I pray, God, that you would move in the hearts of the fathers and the husbands in this place to care well, to lead well, and to serve you well. And I pray it all to the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.